This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 15 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. How you doing, Charlie? Andrew, I just got in a 10-minute shootout, and everybody died, except for me and my two uh, co-detectives. Well, I had a much less interesting week. I've been working on my gardening, and Charlie, nothing's growing. Not even your avocados? Not even my avocados, Charlie. I really I really wanted to make a mean guacamole, but I can't. Oh, I know how you're known for that, Andrew. That's a real shame. <laughs> your Friday oh. night must have been a bit anticlimactic. It was. It was. <laughs> Charlie, we're we're up early this week. We are. Yeah. Usually we try to record on Monday nights and then I edit the show on Tuesday and the new episode goes up sometime Wednesday morning. This past week, though, I had some stuff going on for work because, you know, a lot of people don't think that teachers work during the summer, but we do. Wait, what? <laughs> we do, Charlie. Our jobs don't miraculously end. We have professional development workshops, and we have meetings, and we have lesson planning, and all this stuff to get ready for the following year. But yeah, I, I had some stuff going on for work, and as a result, we were late publishing last week's episode. So sorry that we were late. It's totally my fault, guys. But uh, to make up for it this week, this episode should be up Tuesday morning. Hooray! So, yep, I'm going to do my best from now on to get the episodes out uh, some at some point on, on Tuesday, Wednesday at the latest. But uh, yes, occasionally it might be a little bit hard, just so you know. Uh, also, uh, one more housekeeping thing. Uh, we got some emails from people saying that you were too negative, Charlie. You were, you're kind of a Debbie Downer. Wait, Last what? Week. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, I thought, uh, I, I, I don't understand that at all. You know, Charlie, True Detective is such a happy show. How could you be sad while you watch it? I just, I just don't understand. I, I don't know, Andrew. Uh, to be fair, listeners, I was in a bad mood. It's been a rough couple weeks, actually, so I might have been a little overly critical. Not gonna take back everything I said, but I won't deny the fact that I was in a bad mood that day when we recorded, so I apologize if I got off as very monotonously whiny and obnoxious. It's not my intent to piss anybody off. Well, look, Charlie, I mean, this season has gotten a far more mixed reaction from the general public than last season. So you're not alone in your criticisms. And I just need to reiterate, this is not a, a fan cast, okay? We are film and TV critics. We try to take a critical look at whatever we're viewing and find both the good and the bad. And we don't know what we're going to think until we see it. You know, there have been shows that you and I discussed, Charlie, where we ended up loving almost every single episode. And there have been shows where we pretty much just spent the entire season complaining and venting and ranting about how awful it was. You know, that's yeah. just, that's what happens. We're, we are, we're committed to watching and discussing every episode, but we are not committed to liking every episode. I feel, yeah, if we sugarcoated <laughs> It, it wouldn't be honest, and right. we wouldn't technically be doing our jobs. I'm not out for Pizzolatto's blood or anything, guys, so, like, I won't always be a grouch, I promise. <laughs> yeah, we just, we watch a lot, and we, we, we know what we like, and we know what we don't like, and we just want, 
what we don't like to get better. So we're absolutely, talk about that. but uh, you know, there were only a few True Detective podcasts last season, and we were one of them. Now there are dozens upon dozens of True Detective podcasts, though. So if you feel like we're being too negative on the show, guys, you don't like what we have to say, you know, there's there's other podcasts out there. But uh, as always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. If you leave us a positive review, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. And we've got a couple honorary members to induct this week, Charlie. Uh, first off, we got a review from Floyd Ang, who writes... Andrew and Charlie keep things simple for the casual viewer, as well as expounding on detailed theories and insights for theory-involved viewers. They also comment on the technical side of the direction, cinematography, etc. A really great weekly episode. I don't miss an episode. Aw. Thanks. Thanks, Floyd. You know what? I think we need to make Floyd Ang our honorary gardener, because as <laughs> we've already mentioned, Charlie, something's wrong with the dirt. <laughs> Those avocados need to grow, damn it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we got one more review from Eric Kinney Creative, who writes, Really appreciate what these guys have to say and how their opinions often contrast. Went back and listened to their discussions of season one and really enjoyed their insight. I especially liked the episode after the season one finale, surmising their thoughts on the show and its place and what that place means in pop culture and the television zeitgeist. Thanks, Eric Kinney. Yes, thank you so much. I think that I'm going to make Eric our honorary coffee connoisseur. Because sometimes that Armenian coffee is just so bitter. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah, you got to add a lot of cream and sugar. And I think Eric can really help us track down the best coffee. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, Eric mentioned that uh, he really liked our finale from last season when I believe we had on Mo Ryan from the Huffington Post and we talked about just True Detective as a whole and, and its place in the larger television landscape. And I just want our listeners to know that we are going to try to have some more guests on uh, for the second half of the season because I really like having uh, more established TV critics on just to give their perspectives, whether they like or dislike the show. And I want to make sure that we're getting a variety of viewpoints. So hopefully we'll be able to make that happen in the near future. Absolutely. I'm still amazed that we got Mo Ryan in the first place, Andrew, because I could not be more honored. Yeah, she's fantastic. I love what she writes at the Huffington Post. I love her podcast. And hopefully we'll get to we'll we'll have some more people on like her for the second half of the season. Uh, and if you haven't heard that season one wrap up episode, you should definitely go go check it out because it was a really really fantastic discussion. Absolutely. But uh, let's let's dive into this week's episode. We're going to be talking about season two, episode four of True Detective. The episode is titled "Down Will Come," and it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and Scott Lasser, and directed by Jeremy Pedeswa. Uh, Jeremy Pedeswa, by the way, longtime TV director. He's directed a couple episodes of Game of Thrones. He's directed half a dozen episodes of Boardwalk Empire. Uh, he's done work with a lot of Showtime shows and HBO programs. So he's pretty well established. TV director. I was shocked when I looked up his IMDb page. Yeah, exactly, Andrew. Uh, Boardwalk Empire, Homeland, True Blood, Six Feet Under, Dexter, Weeds, American Horror Story, The Pacific. 
this guy's got an extensive filmography going. Yeah, he's one of those guys you can you can count on. He's like, hey, we need a we need a guy who knows what he's doing to direct an episode of a show. We're gonna call Jeremy Podeswa. So, uh, but uh, before we move on, Charlie, just as a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. So if you have not seen the episode, go watch it, then come back and listen because we're gonna be getting into a lot of detail about what happened. But before we begin, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened this week? Frank keeps setting up new business deals. Paul sleeps with Miguel, then decides to marry Emily, who is pregnant. Ani is suspended after Steve files a formal complaint against her for sexual misconduct. A tip from Dixon's CI reveals that some of Casper's stolen items were pawned by Irina Rolfo, who's connected to a Mexican criminal named Lido Amaria. Our three lead investigators lead a task force to take Amaria down, only to wind up the sole survivors of a shootout that leaves dozens dead. All right, Charlie. As we've already talked about, you were you were pretty harsh last week. I was pretty furious. <laughs> so. However, just like we got with the fourth episode of True Detective last year, this week we got a pretty incredible action scene to, to cap off the end of the episode. A lot of people were excited about it. The internets were blowing up. People seemed pretty positive about this episode overall. Did this episode change your mind, Charlie? Are you feeling a little bit more positive about True Detective now? Yes. I thought this episode was far and away the best episode of the season so far. It might not have topped episode four from last year, but so few episodes of television topped episode four from last year's season. I still have my fair share of, you know, nitpicks here and there, but, you know, the shootout was electrifying and disturbing, necessarily so. I thought that there was more character development. I loved how it mainly was, for the most part, an episode about Ani. And while I, I, I think that her scenes actually work best, I thought that Nick Pizzolatto uh, did a pretty solid job, for the most part, developing her character. And I think that this is also the first episode of this season so far in which he's had a co-writer. The co-writer was Scott Lasser. And there's still a lot of pizzawatos. There's still some awkward lines here and there, but I thought that the writing was much stronger this week. I think Rachel McAdams gave a terrific performance, and it actually moved. Andrew, stuff actually happened. I was so excited that the story actually moved forward, not just with the shootout, but in other ways, too. Well, I will agree with you that things happened for certain characters, okay? I really... I really liked what they did with Paul this week. I really liked everything with Ray this week. I thought Annie was fine, though I have to say Rachel McAdams killed it during the shootout. Oh, so good. She was so intense. Oh, man, I I was really blown away by how well she pulled off that action sequence. And we'll talk more about that scene uh, later on. Mm -hmm. The one character that... I have a problem with now, and it's pretty much the same complaint that you had last week, Charlie. Frank. Yep. I feel like Frank, at this point, is kind of stuck. Uh, we're still, it's just Frank putting together new business deals, being frustrated with his wife, Jordan. She keeps trying to talk to him about having a kid, and he doesn't want to. And it's getting a little redundant and yep yeah it's possible that all of it's gonna pay off by the end of the season i have a feeling you know frank's calling in a lot of favors and setting up a lot of new deals it's possible that this is just a house of cards that's going to collapse 
But even though it could all be worth it, right now I'm I'm really just not not feeling that storyline. And I also have to say that I think Vince Vaughn's performance this week was probably the weakest it's been all season. In particular, that opening scene Oof. with the uh, gardener where he's acting racist, and then he talks with Jordan about having kids. The way he delivered those lines uh, when they're talking about whether or not to adopt really, really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I felt like he did not have a good handle on what that conversation was really about, and I honestly was kind of annoyed. I felt like director Jeremy Podeswa should have done another take. There's a line where he says, at least with your kid, it's your sins. And he emphasizes the word sins. And I think that, at least when I think about that line in my head, you were supposed to emphasize your like, at least with your kid, it's your sins yeah. as opposed to somebody else's. And so I just felt like for whatever reason, it was it was a little bit off. Like, he seemed to think that the emphasis should be on sins over grief, whereas I'm sitting here thinking, no, no, the focus should be on whether or not it's your kid versus someone else's. Well, I also think the writing for his character is the weakest. I mean, it's still so murky, Andrew. I mean, not nearly as murky as it has been in the past, but I agree with you. It's the same scene over and over again, him calling favors or him getting mad and him talking to his wife about... You know, the fact that they can't conceive a kid. You know, I don't mind Vince Vaughn. I love Kelly Riley. They don't really have great chemistry. They seem to be acting in different scenes half the time. And the writing is just awkward. I mean, that's my biggest complaint about the season as a whole is that the writing is just kind of stilted and kind of awkward. And I agree. I don't think Vince Vaughn is entirely comfortable in this role. He's kind of, when he's being antagonistic, I can't help but think of him being the antagonistic character he played in uh, Anchorman as like the rival like <laughs> news <laughs> team uh, anchor. And like, you know, obviously he's not going for comic effect here, but at the same time, it's just off and it's not interesting. I mean, granted he wasn't in the shootout, which was the most exciting scene of the show. It's just every scene is the same. And at least in episode two, we got a monologue about, him being vulnerable and him reflecting on his childhood traumas and whatnot. And here he's just going around asking for stuff. Okay, now he owns a club. All right. And Kelly Riley, such a good actress, is being forced to say really generic things. And then there was that other scene towards the end where she just says, okay, let's just be that couple that fights all the time. Let's just do that. And then it's like, and then it cuts to, it's a close-up of her, it's a close-up of Vince Vaughn, it's a, and then it cuts to a shot of both of them in a room, and then the scene is over, and I'm like, what? Like, you're just gonna end on that note? I actually liked that moment. I liked how she kind of basically confronted him, was like, really? Like, this is, this is who we are now? Really? Like, come on. But we haven't seen that much of them that's that loving, apart from, like, the first episode. It's been all angst about everything. No, I feel like in the first two episodes, we we definitely got the impression that she was his confidant. She's someone that he could be open with, he could be vulnerable with, and I think that that was pretty well established. We did learn in this episode that she had some sort of operation, maybe mm -hmm. an abortion in the past, we don't know, uh, but that has her concern that maybe she can't bear children. I agree, though, she she's underwritten. Uh, one last thing about Frank, though, I will say his best scene again, whenever he's with Colin Farrell, I'm on board. I, I like those two characters together. No, I completely agree, because half the time he's talking to characters that we don't really know and we don't know what their motive is. 
And so the tension doesn't really pay off because we don't know what's really at stake apart from him getting turned down. Right. I mean, the only thing that really bothered me about the scene in the bar was, again, we've got Lara Lynn singing her angsty music. We got a break from her last week, but here we go again. My bed is now a cylinder of steel, cold and hard and shiny to match the way I feel. And also, you were there to see me beg and kneel. What kind of man would ask me then if he could make a deal when lovers of the future read these lines, the sound of steel and thunder, and then it gets cut off? But yeah, I mean, it's nothing against her. As I've said, I listen to some depressing-ass folk music. Like, I listen to some really sad stuff. In terms of setting up the mood and atmosphere for True Detective, way too heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I think that the reason Frank's scenes with Ray work so well is because you can tell that they kind of see themselves in each other, okay? They're both really tough, hardened guys who have been through a lot of stuff, who are trying to go legit. They're trying to pull themselves out of the muck and end up getting pulled back in. And I think that's why their relationship with each other, yeah, it's occasionally hostile, and you can tell Ray in particular doesn't really want to deal with Frank. But Frank, I feel like, almost views Ray as a friend, like a person that he can be a little bit more open with sometimes. Yeah, and what is interesting this week is the last time they were together, it was right before Ray got shot, and like uh, Ray was clearly on the the worst end of, you know, the two. And now Frank's trying to persuade Ray into leaving the cops and joining him. And I like how Ray is, like, going sober and has his head on a little more straight. And it's kind of switched, yet the way that their friendship is, uh, the way that they talk to each other and the way that... Because Frank's always almost a little condescending to Ray, in my opinion. He's always kind of talking down to him. And I found it interesting this week that Ray is at least in a better spot and that Frank's trying to manipulate him into making what sounds to me like a huge mistake. Well, I, I don't know. I think Frank at this point is looking for loyalty and he's looking for assets and things he can use. And I think he's right when he says, hey, Ray, you're smart when you're sober. You know, you could you could be helpful like you could you're wasting your talents. I think there's an element of truth to that, you know. Ray knows that he's corrupt and that the institution he works for is corrupt and he's trying to pull himself out of it. And I think Ray knows that he could be doing better for himself. The only issue is, is working for Frank that much better. Yeah, it it was interesting this week, though, because things actually, you know, I did think at this point, oh, things have actually happened by the time they met up at the bar this time. Not and, and this is all before the shootout, too. Also, if you want to talk about Frank and his wife not being able to conceive, I did find it to be interesting compare, that when you compare that to uh, Paul and Emily, who are clearly not meant for each other, yet they've accidentally gotten pregnant. That is something that is kind of interesting that the show is clearly trying to make us aware of in terms of like how chance can sneak up on you like this in not the greatest ways, so... Right. Emily is fertile soil, to continue the heavy-handed gardening metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So she's pregnant. Paul wants to get married. And I have to say, I really liked what they did with Paul this episode. I really liked Taylor Kitsch's performance. I like how he wakes up 
uh, in Miguel's apartment and is confused. And I like his heart to heart with Ray, where he's basically just like, look, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. He has this little bit of dialogue where he says, like, I've been listening to them my whole life. They've been telling me what to do. I did the army, I did the PD, and it was all because of them. And I wasn't sure if he was talking about society as a whole, or if there's like a specific group of people that he's thinking about, like his parents, or conservative Christians, or you know, <laughs> elements of society who were like, no, being gay is bad, you need to go learn how to be a man's man, go join the military, go be a cop. Yeah, be a man, yeah. Yeah, I liked I liked his confusion, and it was so heartbreaking when he found out that Emily was pregnant and was like, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what I want. I just realized that I love you. I was just sitting there going, oh, no, Paul. Yeah. This is awful. This is just another way in which you're trying to convince yourself that you're something you're not. And it's funny, I, I watched the episode twice, as I have been for most episodes uh, this season, and the first time I watched that scene, I thought, ugh, this is so generic and bland, and it's not convincing at all. And then the second time, I was like, oh, duh, this is how it's supposed to be. He has nothing else in his head other than to be like, I love you. This is the best thing that could happen. And at first, I was like, really, Pizzolatto? You can't write anything more complex than that. But of course, you know, being in that character's psyche, he probably has nothing else except, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And then, like, what should I say? And then, oh, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> No, no, it's not It's not even that. I think he's genuinely happy. You do? Well, I think it's fake happiness. No, no, no. I think that it's false in the sense that I don't think it's what he really needs, but I think... In that moment, he's so confused, he doesn't know who he is, he, he's struggling for who am I, and life presented him with something he can grab onto. I can be this guy. Life has, has put the situation into my lap, I can be the straight family man, and I think psychologically he is so desperate for a concrete identity that he's not lying when he says, I just fell in love with you when you said that. I think he genuinely, in that moment, developed some some feelings and is is happy and that psychologically he has convinced himself this is the right thing to do just because it's something. Yeah, and it's interesting too because... As I've mentioned before, I am a gay man, so maybe I'm reading this differently than you. And I think it's up to interpretation and not in a bad way. Because, like, I at one point believed I was in love with a woman, and I can't tell if I was lying to myself or if I genuinely felt it. And to this day, it still confuses me. And it's interesting how you and I have different interpretations of it. And I don't think either of them are wrong. I think that that's, like, that, that is one of the more interesting complexities that Pizzolatto is tackling this season because most of the drama is so straightforward and here's what's happening and here's how this character clearly feels by their emoting or by this blunt line of dialogue. And that is true how Taylor Kitsch's character of, of Paul is can be read in a multitude of ways. So, yeah, I, I do find that interesting that we came off differently, too, because I'm not sure. I guess we don't know what he's feeling, and I guess that's sort of the point. It looks like Miguel is going to stick around. I mean, he's a nice guy. He makes waffles. He's very good looking. Look, Miguel makes waffles and DVR'd the game. I mean, <laughs> come on. 
It's like, <laughs> obviously, they're meant to be together. Yeah, and he also says, as soon as Taylor Kitsch walks out of the room, we put out some fires last night, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Which meant they had some passionate sex, Andrew. Yes. <laughs> that was some hardcore fucking they did last night. <laughs> yes. They, there, were, there were some hoses putting out some fires. I was like, wow. That is quite the innuendo there. And here's another thing that I wanted to bring up is, like, I read one critic say, uh, criticize the show of, like, oh, well, there's no, like, why doesn't, is Nick Pizzolatto afraid to show gay sex on the show? And I just thought, well, you know, for as much sex as there was in season one, there hasn't been any sex scene so far in season one, apart from Taylor Kitsch getting a blowjob from Emily. And that was clearly meant to develop his character and that he's not into it. And I do find that to be interesting that season one, it was Woody Harrelson getting laid left and right. And now everyone's sexually confused and that there's no sex on screen. Okay. So it's, it seems like we're both on board with how Paul was developed mm -hmm. this week. I want to move on to Ray. Okay. The one scene I didn't really see the point of, though it's possible she'll be more important later on, is the scene where Ray and Annie meet with Betty Chisani, who is b played by uh, Emily Rios from Breaking Bad. I don't know if you recognized her. She was Andrea on Breaking Bad. I did recognize her. It was not my favorite. I mean, it was very blunt. I mean, I don't want to talk about these things. I don't want to talk about any of these things. It, the scene ends with her saying, he was a very bad man. And then I have to go. And then in the next scene after that, which I'm sure we will get to with Annie and her sister, she said, oh, you're with some bad people. And this is the end. On top of that, we had a scene two or three episodes ago where Ray was being called a bad person. And I'm like, you know, Pizzolatto, spice it up a little bit. Not everyone has to be described as a bad person. When Betty said he's a bad person, she wasn't talking about Casper. She was talking about her father. Yes. No, not Casper. Okay, I found it interesting. Didn't she call Casper Mr. Casper? I think so. That's a good point. There was someone in the episode, I think it was Betty Chisani, who, who called him Mr. Casper. And I just thought, man, that's that's awfully formal. And it, it kind of struck me as odd. Yeah, that's a good point. I did think that, again, Rachel McAdams not given the best dialogue, but... Just from the emotions I could see going on facially, I think she did a really good job in terms of selling some pretty clunky exposition. Yeah. Before we talk about Annie, though, uh, one last thing about Ray. Mm -hmm. Ray, Ray is so nice. He is like... <laughs> He's a different character at this point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we're, we're going to get more into Ray when we discuss listener feedback. But mm -hmm. I feel like being shot has been a major turning point for Ray. They were nice bullets. Yes. They, he's he's had a totally change of heart. He's just kind of like, screw it. I want to get out of this line of work that I'm in. You know, he's stopped drinking as much. He's being nice to people. I feel like when he's in the car with Paul, he's genuinely concerned. He's like, here, open my glove box and welcome to my pharmacy. Take whatever medication <laughs> yeah. you need to feel better. I did like that scene. Yeah. Don't worry about the reporters. The reporters are, are uh, dog fuckers, I believe he calls them. Yeah, he calls them dog fuckers. <laughs> yeah, there's one point where, where I can't remember what the line is, but Taylor Kitsch says something about how he's, like, lost or he's not who he wants to be or something. And Ray is just like, look out there and look at me. 
that's everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's ba- yeah. You got the rhyme ba- line basically right. Yeah. Look at there. Then look at me. Nobody does. That's right. That's what he says. Yeah. And then the funniest I've laughed at an intentional joke all season is even though he just called someone a dog fucker goes, all right, enough of this monkey fuck. And then just takes out the signal <laughs> and Taylor Kitsch takes a swig of vodka and they just speed through traffic. I thought that yeah. was pretty funny. <laughs> Ray is rapidly becoming my favorite of our trio of police investigators just because he's funny. And he, and like I said, he's, he's genuinely nice now. He's encouraging Paul. He's warning Annie, like, Hey, you might want to be on the lookout. Like, You're considered expendable. He's not, right. he's not threatening to butt fuck anyone's uh, fathers with their mom's headless corpse. You know, he's, he's, he's changing more rapidly than anyone on the show. That's for sure. Right, and I really just, I, I'm really enjoying Colin Farrell's performance. Oh, he's terrific. I mean, Colin Farrell's always been great in everything, but I think Colin Farrell also gets the dark humor Pizzolatto's aiming for more than anyone else on the show. Because so. he's been in some really funny, dark comedies. I don't know if you saw In Bruges or Seven Psychopaths, Andrew, but he's oh, yeah. a riot in both of those. And I think that he's the one who has been given the most to do in terms of comic possibilities, even if they are the grimmest of comic possibilities. He, you know, Colin Farrell, I, as I, I think I said this last week, I've never not liked Colin Farrell. Even the first two episodes where I complained about how cliched his character was, it was never Colin Farrell who I was complaining about so much as it was the dialogue he was being given to utter. Right. Ray goes with Annie to visit her father. And I just thought it was great that her father is like, oh, by the way, you give off this huge aura and it's green and black. Oh, that was my favorite Pizzolatto of the week when they leave and they get, and then uh, Ray says, uh, what does green and black mean? And then she goes, I don't know, your mood ring. <laughs> I was like, I don't think, do people wear mood rings anymore, Andrew? I thought that was like something out of the 90s or something. <laughs> like, I don't I know. Like, I, I haven't thought about a mood ring in several years. You know, I actually looked it up, what these colors mean, and it's actually perfect for Ray because... Green is a pretty healthy aura. It represents like growth and it means that, that you're living in a healthy way. And then black, of course, represents like fear and guilt mm-hmm. and, you know, all this pent up stuff inside. And I feel like, well, yeah, that's, that's Ray in a nutshell. He's got all this stuff inside, but he's trying to grow. He's trying to be a, a healthier person. Yeah. I will not take back that I did feel a bit gypped at the way. Pizzolatto manipulated us into thinking he was dead and then they didn't. But I will say ever since he's come back from the dead, Ray has been a much more enjoyable character. Well, let's talk about Annie. Mm Mm-hmm. She is now basically suspended, aside from this special investigation, because Steve filed a formal complaint. Not Steve. I know. He seemed like such a nice guy. Oh, such a nice guy, Andrew. Also, we find out that... She, at one point, had sex with her partner. You know, they had this little exchange where he's like, hey, it busted up my marriage. And she's like, no, your marriage was already busted. And fuck you. And he's like, hey, I'm just trying to be your friend. I've been here for you. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting, too. Because it seems like she's had a pretty positive relationship with her partner, Elinka. I did find it interesting that when Annie is confronted with this formal complaint, 
she says, you know, this wouldn't be happening if I was a wo- if I was a man. Exactly. I love that. And I like how her boss is just like, uh, yes, it would. You just wouldn't be able to use that line. And she also says, you know, they're high fiving him out there, right? Right. And I was, I was trying to think about it and try to, I was trying to, to, to figure out like, okay, would this be different if she was a man? And at first I was like, no, her boss is right. If there was a formal complaint filed, there are procedures in place that would still occur. However, then I realized, wait, wait, wait. If a female subordinate filed a complaint against a male officer, I think it would be easier for people to just look at it and say, oh, you know, she's a woman. She's being emotional. So much easier. They'd just be like, ah, she was a whore. Like, she just got slutty for a night. Who cares? No, like, not even that. I think she. they would just say things like, oh, she's overreacting. You know how Exactly. No, I liked that it was about that. The one scene, I really loved that scene. The only thing that bothered me about that scene was the fact that he brought up gambling issues, which is news to me because we haven't even gotten the slightest hint that she's got gambling issues. And it kind of took away from the whole focus of the scene. Scene, which was sexism in the workplace. Well, we did see her drinking at a casino. But that's drinking at a casino. That's not gambling at a casino. And I couldn't tell if Pizzolatto's like, oh, this is my male character trying to pin it on more than just sexism in the workplace to not make him seem like he's a chauvinistic pig, or if she genuinely does have gambling issues. Because you're right, we did see her in a casino. But if we do get scenes of her having gambling issues halfway through the season now, and we're being told about that and not really shown it, I will be a little annoyed. Yeah, same here. I did think that that was kind of weird that they were bringing that up. I was like, well, I guess she could need to gamble if she needs to buy more books on knives. Because <laughs> she didn't deny it. That was the other thing. Like, if she denied it and said, oh, that's bullshit, this is, like, clearly, a, you know, something that has to do with me being a woman and having sex with someone I work with who's a position below me, you know, the fact that she didn't deny it confused me more, because if she at least said, oh, you're you're full of crap, that would have at least meant, okay, she doesn't have gambling issues. Right. And speaking of the rioting, Charlie, we haven't even talked about the Pizzawattos. I brought up one, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought the rioting was a lot more solid this week than usual. There was There were no lines of dialogue that just made me scratch my head and go, huh? You know, and um, I had two lines... That I wrote down, but you know what? They're both pretty easy to to interpret. Exactly. Yeah, none of them threw me off and thought, in what universe does Nick Petzolato think this makes sense? Right. The first line is one that's been shown before in all the previews where Frank tells Ray, sometimes your worst self is your best self. You know what I mean? That doesn't bother me, actually. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I kind of do know what you mean. I yeah. know what you're, what you're getting at there. And then the other thing is when Annie is talking to her sister, she's she's talking about memories and what she thinks of her mother and all that, and they're talking about key moments in your life, and Annie says, those moments, they stare back at you. You don't remember them. They remember you. Yeah. You turn around. There they are, staring. And... I thought, okay, that's a little overdone. Yeah, I thought the same thing. But at least I know where you're coming from. I know what you're trying to say. Well, right. And actually, Charlie, I think that that might be another nod to to Nietzsche, who famously wrote, 
you know, when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss stares back. Yeah, it's a good point. He was talking about evil and morality, but there's no reason you couldn't take that same sentiment and apply it to memory. I completely agree. I mean, I will admit, me and my friends did chuckle when she said that. In no way does that reflect McAdams' performance, who sold that as well as I could have imagined. But you're right. Upon second viewing, because I watching this episode twice, I was I found myself to be far less critical than I was about anything the second time around. Because even the second time around, for most of these episodes, I still had no idea what in the fuck some of these people were saying. And here, I found myself to be a lot more empathetic as to what was being explained. And I think it does have to do with the fact that he had a co-writer this time, Andrew. I think that someone took Pizzolatto up and was like, we need to kind of straighten this out a little bit. I was just about to bring that up, Charlie. Does the fact that Scott Lasser helped write this episode, is that why a lot of the dialogue just feels a little bit more grounded? I would assume so, because, as you said, I mean, the only other line that I thought was possibly unintentionally funny, although it might have been even intentionally, I don't know, is when Vince Vaughn goes up to uh, the people in the Latino community and says, and mow the fucking lawn. I don't want any of these kids getting snake bit. And, like, (laughs) I know what he means by that. At the same time, I couldn't help but laugh out loud. You know what's interesting, Charlie? Scott Lasser has one credit on IMDb, and it's this. Really? Yes, and I just want to know, what happened? How does that happen? How does Nick Pizzolatto, the guy who who seems like he has a pretty tight grip on True Detective when it comes to creative control, how does he wind up sharing credit with a guy who has no other credits to his name? I'm I'm curious to know that story. That is a very good point. Um, the stuff I, you know, David Morrissey's a good actor. His character is almost, is still a caricature to me. I mean, how many times have we seen him at this point? Twice. So maybe that's not fair of me to judge. But those scenes aren't my favorite with him. Well, let's talk about those scenes. So we discovered that Annie's father, Elliot, did indeed know Dr. Pitler in the 80s. He also knows Mayor Chisani and Mayor Chisani's father. And there's that photograph where they're all just kind of hanging out. I don't know, Charlie, do you think her father is involved? I mean, probably. It doesn't seem, I mean, they've already set him up as a pretty disgusting person based on the fact that one of our protagonists clearly has uh, some pretty strong feelings against him. And given all the other information she's supplied with to us, as vague as it is, there's clearly some weird sex stuff going on. And can I just say another thing that made me crack up when you cut to his like cult or whatever, uh, she's walking alongside him with Ray and everyone in the yard is doing yoga. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, OK, we got to cover up like how fucked up we are. Everyone do yoga in the front yard. Like, it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> like, like we're about peace and spiritual growth. Like, yeah, that that is pretty funny. How are you feeling about the the doctor now, Charlie? You still think he could be heavily involved? Because I'm starting to think that he probably is. I'm starting to agree with you now that yeah. we've seen that he and Annie's father and the Chisanis are seem seem like they have some sort of connection. Also, his name is Dr. Pitler, which rhymes with Hitler. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is another thing is I don't know if you watched the previously on True Detective uh, segments, Andrew, but like one of the first things they showed was 
the psychiatrist scene and I'm like, oh, well, we haven't seen him for a little while. Bet he's involved. You know, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of like, here's some breadcrumbs for those uh, who are being forced to watch out of context. So, yeah, I, I no part of me doubts that he is somehow involved in some sinister fashion. Oh, when we were talking about Pizzawatos, last thing I want to mention about Pizzawatos, Frank uses the word louche. I missed that. <laughs> Somehow both times I watched this episode, I missed that. Loosh, not lush. Do you think Vince Vaughn read the line wrong? And was no, like... no, he he uses it multiple times. He has the, he and Jordan both have this meeting with his henchmen where they're talking about, hey, something's going on with you. You had your phone off with Stan, when Stan was killed and all that. And you're doing this whole Roger Moore thing. You think you're so suave and sophisticated, but no, you seem pretty loose to me. Loose means disreputable. Means Good to like know. You're you're acting pretty shady. Frank even asked him, like, "Do you know what that means? You know what loose means?" <laughs> yeah, I, I read a great joke somewhere. Someone online was like, "Hey, maybe the reasons Frank's broke is that he spent so much money on all these five dollar words." <laughs> Frank spent a large majority of his t childhood watching Wheel of Fortune with his parents. Uh, <laughs> Look, he was locked in the basement, and he had nothing to read but the dictionary. Yeah. So. <laughs> the writing, I mean, it's still the weakest part of the show, Andrew. I mean, I did watch this episode with a couple friends of mine who I hadn't seen in a while. They've been a bit critical of this uh, season so far, like I have. We did make a drinking game to every time someone says the word fuck, not used in a complete sentence, but any time any character just says, oh, fuck, it be it was unbelievable how many times. And don't, I know, like, I do it all the time, too. I say, oh, fuck, all the time. But it was pretty funny how not just Taylor Kitsch as Paul who said it about 15 times when his motorcycle was stolen, and understandably so. It was every character at one point just goes, oh, fuck. Paul has his little breakdown when he realizes his motorcycle was stolen, where he just yells, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then after the shootout, Annie just kind of stands there and just she's just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> at one point she says, oh, Christ. And I was like, oh, variety. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, before we get to the shootout, Jumping back to Ray. Last thing I want to say about Ray. What did you think of that scene with his son, where he gives his son his dad's badge? I mean, I thought Colin Farrell was good in it. I don't blame the child actor. I found that to be one of the more forced scenes to add dramatic. In it was more to say, in case he dies again in this shootout, here's a last moment of him possibly bonding with his son. I don't think Colin Farrell was bad in it, though. I thought he sold it pretty well. And the kid could not have seen more disinterested, and obviously I'm sure he was directed to play it that way. Well, of course Ray's son is going to seem a little bit cold or disinterested. There's a moment where Ray is like, come here, come here, let me give you a hug. And you can tell he's hesitant. And so I think that they're doing a nice job of establishing that, yeah, Ray has been a terrible father, and his kid is afraid of him. Yeah, because he basically is like, okay, like, let go of me now, Dad. Yeah, here's the question, though. Ray tells him, you know, here's this badge because you might not see me again for a while. And I was trying to figure out, okay, is he referencing the fact that he might be giving up custody? Or, deep down, does Ray think that he's going to die? Like, does his encounter with the guy in the bird mask, does the vision he had of his father 
where his father says, you run out of the woods and they kill you, son, they kill you. You know, does he think that this is all leading up to his own death? I'd argue a bit of both. I think he thought both were pretty big possibilities. And I will admit, as a viewer, I thought both of those were understandable from a character, from the character's point of view, that those possibilities would prevent him from seeing his son for a long time. And it was much better than any scene that he had with his son beforehand. It just, at the same time, it was a bit of a, you know, we have seen that scene several times before where it's like, this was your grandfather's and now I want you to have it. So it didn't dramatically pique my interest, although I understand why it was there, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? I got what they were aiming for. It just didn't really personally interest me that much. All right. Well, let's move on to the shootout, Charlie. The 10-minute-long shootout. Pretty intense scene. I was on the edge of my seat here. I thought that this was really, really well-directed. I mean, considering they're not going to do the whole single-shot thing like they did last season. And honestly, if they did at that point, if they did another single take, I would have felt like it was kind of gimmicky in a way. You know, I feel like they would have been, like, trying to... It would have drawn attention to itself so hard to the fact that, hey, remember when we pulled this off in season one? Well, we're going to do it again here. I like the fact that it was its own shootout that wasn't trying to mimic the brilliance of the choreography from last season. I will say, I think the build-up to the... Shootout was a little bit rushed. I didn't quite put all the pieces together until the second viewing. Same here. I don't don't feel stupid because me and I watched this with two other friends and we were kind of like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, on the second viewing, I finally put it together like, oh, okay, so Teague has been hitting up pawn shops and Paul in this episode goes along to kind of help him out. They've been going to pawn shops to see if whoever sacked Casper's place, pawned any stolen items from his house. And I was just wondering, like, wait, how do you know what was stolen? Like, did you ask his, did you ask people that knew him? Did he have a, how do you you know that's his watch? I was a little bit confused. Maybe it's just because I I don't know enough about detective work. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, it was, it was confusing because they threw a lot of new information at us at once. All of a sudden we know about this guy, Amarillo, who came out of nowhere, and as soon as he came out of nowhere, and they were like, his fingerprints were on this watch that uh, was Casper's. I was like, well, it's episode four. This is obviously a red herring. It's clearly not him. It's meant to misdirect everyone else. So when the shootout happened, I knew that this was mainly going to be something unrelated that would end up hurting them and not lead to anything, as far as I know for now. But, you know, when they said that he was tortured for his valuables, I'm like, that's not what happened. But Anyway. (laughs) Well, it's clear that this is a setup just because, one, this whole thing came together due to Teague Dixon, who is a terrible detective and has been following Paul and who has probably got some shady stuff going on with these corrupt officials. That calls everything into question. Also, they find this watch that was of Casper's that was pawned. And it was pawned by Arena Rulfo, who's connected to this criminal named Leto Amarillo. And their theory is, oh, she was turning tricks for Casper, and Amarillo's her pimp, and he decided to beat Casper up and torture him for more stuff. 
And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is pretty much the same theory that the state has been pushing from the very beginning. Like, oh, it was probably just a pimp. Yeah, we know this guy isn't involved in anything, and it is kind of... I, I don't expect that Pizzolatto even expects us to fall for this. Right. Fun fact, by the way, Lido comes from the Spanish and Italian verb that means to damage or harm, and Amaria is one letter away from Amarillo, which means yellow, which reminded me of the whole Yellow King thing. from Ah, good find. Yeah. I agree with you, Andrew. I thought that it was terrifically shot and edited. I thought that all three actors were excellent and completely believable. And it was edited and shot in such a way that really made you feel as if you were in the midst of the action and you didn't know what to do, much like the characters. It was easily the 10 most exciting minutes of this season. The one part of it that made me feel queasy, and I'm saying this as a Caucasian man... Did it bother you that we're watching a bunch of white celebrities shooting up mainly Latino actors who aren't characters that are kind of the, they're the Latino uh, drug dealing stereotypes? Did that bother you at all? That did not bother me at all because it seems like there's still a lot of racism present in Vinci, okay? So you've got Frank making racist comments to his gardener. You've got the fact that he already really doesn't like the Mexicans and had to take out Danny Santos's teeth. It makes sense to me that if this is a setup, of course you're going to pin it on the Latino gangster, you know, because that that plays into people's stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So they'll be more likely to go, yeah, like, oh yeah, of course, Mexican criminal... Of course, he's probably behind everything. At the same time, when you compare this to a show like Breaking Bad, which did have most of its villains were of Latino nationality, those villains were as developed for the most part as Walter White. And in some cases, especially when it came to Gus Fring, sometimes even more empathetic than Walter White. And I can't think of a Latino character on this show who isn't a drug lord, a woman who's been abused or is somehow corrupt, or gay, for that matter, or is a fuck buddy that they're too ashamed of. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's already been four hours. Can we get one Latino character or some character that isn't white to get a little development here? It might have made me feel a little less queasy. Unless, of course, as you point out, Nick Pizzolatto's trying to address race. No, no, I think, I think you're nitpicking a little bit. Okay, that's fair. I think that at least when it comes to... Ledo Amaria, clearly, clearly, he's a red herring, okay? Clearly he is. I'm not denying that. I think Pizzolatto is trying to make it obvious to the audience, no way is this guy the actual killer. No way. And he's doing that by making sure he's underdeveloped, by kind of throwing this task force and shootout together at the last minute, at the end of the episode. And I think we're just supposed to be thinking, oh man, how far does this conspiracy go? Who's really involved? I mean, don't forget, Charlie, at this point in season one, our detectives were introduced to Reggie Ledeau, who also ended up just dying and being a red herring. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be politically correct here and try and just say, because there is a racism bias in Hollywood and in the media in general. So with all that going on, maybe that leaked into my interpretation of this. Maybe you are right, Andrew. I'm trying to be a little sensitive to how race is used to stereotype supporting characters in film and television. So, you know, I'm not going to deny that the fact that, oh, holy shit, like it, the, that scene blew my mind. So that, that, that's all I was trying to say. That's fair enough, Charlie. Um, other fun fact, Leto Amaria is played by Cesar Garcia, also from Breaking Bad. Oh, we're getting a lot of Breaking Bad alumni here, <laughs> we in, this, truly uh, are. here in True Detective. The thing I like about this shootout, Charlie, is that it occurs over a series of phases, like all the best action sequences do. There's rising and falling action within each scene, with, within the scene itself. It's like the scene unfolds over different steps. Like, okay, first we're all behind the cars. Then there's an explosion and we're going to start to move up towards the other wall. Then we're, then we're going to move to the back of the building. Then we're going to focus on the bus. And it, it just, it, the best action sequences are almost like mini movies in themselves going from scene to scene or set piece to set piece. And this sequence was no different. And that's why I think it worked so well. I agree. And it felt completely realistic. And, you know, innocent bystanders getting hit was really disturbing and not in a way that was meant merely for shock value because honestly I find it to be all the more disturbing when you take a film like San Andreas and you just have a bunch of CGI buildings falling down and you know that like millions of people are dying just for your entertainment and here the actions of this shootout have consequences for the cops and the killers because innocent people are getting killed and they're not just brushing that off and just saying, ah, we have to do our job, keep moving. Like they're clearly traumatized by how much collateral damage has they're, they're causing here. Well, that's why this scene felt so intense. It was because it was like, oh my goodness, anything could happen. Yeah. I mean, Teague Dixon gets his head blown apart that was insane. Yeah, someone gets practically gets their jaw shot off. I do want to ask, how the fuck did that building blow up? Like, I, I, at the first, upon first viewing, I did kind of chuckle out of disbelief. Like, oh my god, that's so over the top. But then there is a line I caught second time around, which was, is this a cooking lab? Which would make sense. At the same time, did they even shoot anything on the third floor? No, I guess the idea is, if it was some sort of meth lab that it would have been rigged for them to blow whenever the police showed up. Like, oh, if, if we need to destroy okay. the evidence, we are just going to blow it up. They were shooting someone. I know that for a fact it was someone on the second floor who also did not seem very faced that the entire floor below him blew up. At the same time, he was getting shot at by, like, 18 cops. You mean in the floor above him? Yeah, floor above him, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see next week what that was. Like, was it actually some sort of... Uh, meth lab, what caused that explosion? I did see a pretty funny thing on Reddit where someone pointed out that, you know, I think it's in episode one or two when Ray and Teague are at Casper's house. Teague makes this comment like, if I ever die, make sure you burn my shit. 
<laughs> That's a good, good joke. Holy shit! <laughs> so it's brilliant. Ooh, ooh, maybe maybe Dixon was some shady's going on with him. <laughs> Blow up the shit. <laughs> they're wiping away the evidence by blowing that up. <laughs> the one thing about the shootout that did bother me, and unfortunately had to end the episode. What in the fuck was the director thinking when they decided to end it with that fade out? I know this is gonna seem like the most nitpicky thing to some people but it seemed like they were beginning an episode of law and order like after the theme song of law and order where i was just like what Uh, editing decision why i get that it's supposed to be a stylistic decision but it made it feel for such a gritty raw explosive scene it completely sucked me back into oh right i'm watching a television show i actually really liked it i thought it was really cool i thought i I had been on the edge of my seat I thought it was a really intense scene. And then to just freeze frame and fade out, it, it was almost like they're saying, okay, that was crazy. Nothing's going to be the same after that. We're about to like take this story in a new direction and kick it up a notch. Like We're halfway done with the season. Things are going to be really, really interesting in the second half. It almost seemed like they were consciously splitting up the season into two halves and saying, all right, we had everything before the freeze frame, and now we're going to have everything after the freeze frame and this moment. And and also, I feel like that's a key moment because you've got all of our three characters, our three leads, who are the sole survivors and all they could do is just kind of look around in shock. You've got Ray and Annie, who are both clearly traumatized. Oh, yeah. Everyone's traumatized. Well, no, Paul is not. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Paul also shoots the most people. Thank you for correcting me on that. Paul clearly feels like this is where he can be himself. And, you know, he was the one in the army, so that does make sense on a certain level. And I guess that when Paul does try to feel normal doing anything else, he absolutely hates himself. So that is a good point. Thank you for correcting me there. Right. The scene when uh, when Ray is talking to Paul in the car, Ray says something about how, like, I know you were in the military and, you know, I'm sure it's easier for you here than it was then or it's it's probably harder for you when you think about that time or something. I can't remember what his exact words are, but then Paul is basically just like, no, actually, it's the opposite. Like, it's it's here in the real world with the normal people that's mm-hmm. tough for me. Yeah, several people suffer mentally when they return from war, in, it depend, regardless of what war it is. I mean, you know, The Best Years of Our Lives is a classic film all about returning to normalcy and how they can't feel, they can't go back to the way they were. Uh, the last few minutes of uh, Catherine Bigelow's film The Hurt Locker summed this up really well with the scene with Jeremy Renner not even knowing how to buy groceries anymore. And you're right, that is a really good point to bring up. I kind of took that for granted. I Maybe it was just because the shootout was so intense that I wasn't really paying attention because you're right maybe that was a really good directorial decision too because a lot of the uh aftermath shots were focused on ani and ray's trauma and paul was kind of off to the side and he did most of the killing so right i actually think that this scene was directed in a in a way that really does some character building in Mm -hmm. the midst of all the action and actually shows and doesn't tell what's going on right you've got paul he's the one who's like moving from car to car telling ray like cover me he's focused he's the one that takes out the guy on the second floor that's causing so many problems 
he is focused. He is in his element. He's the one that saves Annie when uh, that guy is starting to close in on her and she's out of bullets and she's freaking out like, oh man, I'm going to have to use my knife. Paul saves the day. I mean, he is like at his most calm and collected when he's in the midst of this violent situation. That is true. I did. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's meant to tease us, but I was kind of like, ah, come on, give us a little knife action, Pizzolatto. I know you want to. Like, I know obviously it's he's teasing us for a point here. The knives are going to come out. But I did get a little disappointed when I was like, ah, not even one bit. Well, it makes sense that the characters would react in this way. I mean, Annie runs out of ammo and... She goes to check with the guy next to her that just got killed for to see if he's got extra ammo, and he's out. And you can just see the look on Rachel McAdams' face. She plays it so well where you can tell, like, she she is terrified, and she's pretty much convinced, oh, man, I'm going to die. I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. And you can see the look of terror on Colin Farrell's face as well during the entire shootout where he's kind of freaking out as at all as all this is going on. And I was thinking about it and I realized, you know, most cops will tell you they spend 30, 40 years on the police force and never draw their weapon. Correct. Yeah. Like it's like it's actually very, very rare that something like this happens. So Paul is the only one who in all likelihood has ever had to draw a weapon on someone or shoot anybody. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he would be the one who's calmest in this situation while Ray and Annie are just losing their minds and clearly yeah. after this just look completely traumatized. Like they're going to need some therapy after this. Oh yeah, and Paul also it makes sense why he has the most the most precise aim of the three. So, that's a good point. I didn't realize until this conversation that not showing Paul's reaction is kind of an effective way to show us it's not a big deal for him. Well, right, like in that final freeze frame Ray and Rachel McAdams at at the very end where they're just kind of looking at each other, they both like double over. They're having to catch their breath. They're just like, man, I can't believe what's, what's happened here. And Paul's just like standing in the same pose, holding his gun. He doesn't move. He's like cool and calm and just stoic almost. So I I really think that the direction told us a lot about their characters visually rather than through dialogue. Also, one more thing about the uh, freeze frame. If, like last season, it cuts forward a couple years ahead, then I won't judge the decision to use a freeze frame nearly as harshly as I am now, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Because didn't episode five, isn't that when they jumped forward in time last season? Right, we'll see. Next week's episode is called Other Lives, and I don't know if you saw the preview, Charlie, but Ray no longer had his iconic mustache. Oh. So it's possible that we'll get some time jumps, or maybe Ray will just be so traumatized after this. He's like, you know what? I need a change. I'm going to shave my mustache. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We will see. We will see. Uh, anything else you want to say about this episode, Charlie, before we get into feedback? I mean, I know we didn't really talk about everything with the mines and the runoff and how that's killing all the farmland. That'll probably be a major plot point later in the season. But it's not uh, the most interesting plot point in an episode that was pretty busy this this week. So, I mean... Right. 
did either of us really care that much about when they were talking about that, or were we kind of waiting for something else to happen? I mean, I'm sure it's important because the place that they're in and the land that they're looking at has all of those markers that pretty much opened the entire season. You know, the first shot was of those markers. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's important, but yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of development there this episode. We were just told that, oh, there were some mines that uh, there's been, you know, chemical runoff and that's polluted all the soil. But here's what I'm wondering, Charlie. If we know there was a lot of mining going on, is that where the diamonds came from? Possibly. That would make the most sense to me, Andrew. All right. Well, let's move on to some feedback. As always, our listeners can email the show at detectthis at com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. We got a voicemail to go over. Uh, Our good friend Floyd left us a voicemail, and here's what he had to say about this episode. Hey, guys. This is Floyd from Ohio, uh, calling about True Detective. I just wanted to say, you know, last week I had I heard a lot of reviews and, and read things about, you know, people were kind of, kind of had the sentiment of, you know, give us something already, you know, as far as the show. And I wasn't there, um, but I think I am now. Uh, this this last episode was really just didn't give us anything. And, and you know, the shootout was great, uh, you know, technical, technically and in, in, in entertaining-wise, you know, the shootout was great. But really, what did we get? I mean, when I compare it to last season, and yes, I'm going there, you know, we got our first suspect. It was Reggie Ledoux, and he was interesting and scary and intimidating and had an awesome hideout. You know, everyone thought that perhaps Reggie Ledoux last year was the guy. No one, and I mean no one watching it, thought that this pimp was really the guy. So really, this shootout was was for nothing. Um, it was entertaining, and it was technical, and it was great. But uh, at the end of the day, again, we just got a bunch of nothing. And I'm kind of in that group now that says this this show needs to give us something. And it's time to move on. All right, guys, thanks. Bye. Well, I think that Floyd is right when he says that this shootout and everything with Lito Amaria is clearly a red herring. However, I don't mind that. And I still feel like this was an important episode for moving a lot of plot and character threads along because clearly there's not one major villain this season. Clearly there's yeah. not going to, you know, yes, they're, they're looking for Casper's killer, but clearly there are a lot more parties involved and there's a lot of corruption and there's just there's just so many people that could be wrapped up in this thing. Of course, there's going to be some sort of red herring, some sort of setup to try and get our three leads either killed or just push them in the wrong direction to cover up what's really going on. Because I feel like a lot of people have an interest in making sure this case is not solved. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would annoy me if this character of um, Amaria was a red herring for multiple episodes. I guess since he was brought up halfway through this episode, it didn't bother me so much because it was obvious. But here I feel like Pizzolatto, as much as I do think he hammers things home for us way too much, isn't playing that card so much as he's trying to give the characters hope while making it pretty obvious to us as viewers that it's clearly not this guy. You know what I mean? Right. We know that there's got to be some larger conspiracy going on. Our characters all know there has to be a larger conspiracy going on. They're questioning their superiors. They're questioning 
why they were put together and why this investigation is going on. So I feel like this shootout and everything with Leto is going to seem suspicious mm-hmm. to our lead characters. And one, this scene at the end, it put them together in an intense situation. So it forces them to bond, essentially. Like, yes. w- once you've been in a, sh- in a firefight with somebody, I'm pretty sure you're going to trust them. Agreed. So they all can trust each other now, and they can work together to figure out what's really going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement there. But I, I agree, Floyd. I mean, th- it's certainly not my favorite season of television I've watched this year. But compared to last week, at least I felt like I got I got something. At least they're at a different point this week than they were last week, which was uh, or, or previous weeks, which was just uh, we're on the case. We're really angsty and we hate ourselves. There's some growth here that I at least respect. All right. Well, let's talk about some emails. We had a lot of emails this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about an email we got from someone uh, who didn't leave his or her name, but it was a, it was a pretty good email about Ray. And I'm just going to read a few portions of it here. So this person writes, the two key lines Ray has had so far are, I welcome judgment and we get the world we deserve. Taken out of their respective contexts, I think we see these are the key to what is going on with Ray and perhaps the whole season. To me, it was apparent rather quickly that Ray could not possibly continue in the whole brass knuckles butt-fucking people with headless corpses vein. (laughs) This behavior, I think, was on Pizzolatto's part intentionally disturbing and ridiculous as a way of showing that Ray was a hair's breadth away from completely losing his mind, and he knows it. Ray knows he is at fault for his predicament, and he knows he cannot continue this way. He is in the world he has earned through his actions, and he looks forward to some judgment that will bring it to an end. In the second episode, that's exactly what he gets. First, his ex-wife tells him exactly what kind of man he is, but also what kind of man he could and should have been. The second part of his judgment is the shotgunning. The shotgunning made perfect sense to me in light of what came before, as did his sharp turn in introspection and sobriety. We meet Ray at rock bottom and see him climb up. His symbolic death is a precursor to his symbolic resurrection. His story is not a sign of Pizzolatto succumbing to caricature or cheap shock tactics. I give him a lot more credit than that, and I wish more people would as well. And that is a very good point. I feel like my immediate knee-jerk reaction to Nick Pizzolatto being a jerk who's just trying to yank our chain to get more people to tune in uh, blinded me from seeing that, you know, it's not like he wasn't building up to something. Because as we've seen, it's now been two episodes now, too, Andrew. It's not, you know, now that we've seen even more growth from him, I will admit that I was pretty nitpicky and pretty angry about the way they handled it. Well, I think your issue last week, Charlie, it wasn't that Ray had survived. It was the way that they had structured it. You know, exactly. Ending the episode on a cliffhanger only to immediately negate that when we return um mm-hmm. and i think that's what irritated you it is yeah if, if, if he came back in the same episode i mean it wouldn't have been nearly as interesting to watch on a weekly basis but to do it no so nonchalantly irritated me right but i think that this this listener is right we are meant to see this as a symbolic death and resurrection for ray we are meant to see this as a major turning point which is probably why Pizzolatto chose to end the episode 
on that note because it, it is a major point for him, for his character, not just in terms of it being an interesting plot point. And so I, I do think it's going to be interesting to see Ray change even further in the second half of the, the season and see how he evolves. The only question for me, Charlie, is again, is he going to survive? Is this going to be a resurrection that he lives through? Or is he going to make this brand change only to maybe at the end sacrifice himself or die in some other way? I mean, based on the fact that we got that scene where he gave his son his grandfather's badge and said, this will mean something to you someday, and I probably won't, go, or won't see you for a while, it's, it wouldn't surprise me either way. At the same time, Matthew McConaughey suffered some pretty... I mean, both of him and Woody Harrelson suffered some pretty seemingly fatal wounds last season, and I thought they were going to die, and they ended up coming back. So, I don't know. Well, given Rust Cole's whole philosophy in season one, I think most people were pretty convinced that he was going to die. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of a surprise when he didn't. So, who knows? Maybe Ray will uh will survive this season as well. We'll have to wait and see. It's a really in-depth, very complex reading of a character that I have been quite harsh on and have not been really not even looking as hard as I should be for what uh redemptive qualities there are to his character. So I really appreciate this feedback and you know you've definitely opened my eyes into seeing it's not just to yank my chain or to get me to go oh my god he's alive there is something going on here right so thank you very much for that email um let's move on to our last email this is an email we got from eric who wrote a very lengthy email i'm only going to read parts of it but Basically, Eric's whole interpretation, and you can read uh, more of this. He, he left some of it as a comment um, on our website, filmgeekradio.com, for, for one of our episodes. But he's basically interpreting this season as, in many ways, being Nick Pizzolatto's reaction to how critics responded to last season and essentially a, a commentary on Hollywood. So Eric writes, From the moment season two starts... Bezaridis is constantly bombarded with definitions of herself by others. Many times during your reviews of this season so far, you guys have made a point to mention the strange abundance of exposition constantly dumped on her character, as well as people telling her what she should do or not do because of what she is or what she's been through. I believe the overuse of this is on purpose, and is Nick Pizzolatto's commentary on the Hollywood machine trying to dictate or regurgitate or assign something to women characters, and as you said before, keep them objects, not subjects. I believe this commentary continues with Paul paralleling the trials of a masculine, handsome, secretly aloof gay man hiding in the Hollywood machine. Paul is like all of us, surrounded by strong and hardened real men like Clint Eastwood, and possibly overcompensating with his acting choices and lifestyle? Is Pizzolatto setting up something monumental by using the show and its notoriety to buck the system, creating a gay hero everyone will want to and have to root for in the end, beating the machine at its own game and possibly redefining what Hollywood wants to tell us is a hero? Meanwhile, Velcoro is the tool of the establishment, the go-to white knight of the Hollywood machine who is truly ugly inside. That is a great point, because I did think it was going to be Colin Farrell uh, leading everyone through the gates of whatever 
evil force uh, is behind all of this corruption. And at the same time, it, it's it's interesting now, given the context of this episode, because now, as we've said, Ray, it's nicer, and Paul seems to be, you know, the one who doesn't give a shit about violence or isn't psychologically as impacted by being in the center of uh, violence as uh, Ray and Annie. That is a good point about Annie. It is very, very, very clear that her character is the result of a big reaction to the underwritten female characters of season one. And that is probably my favorite part of season two. And maybe I wasn't giving him enough credit. Maybe it is on purpose. Maybe Pizzolatto is trying to hammer this home and it's trying to make us aware of the fact that he is in control and that it's not just sloppy writing that's merely exposition simply because he doesn't know how to develop his characters. That's a really, all of these are really strong points, Andrew. And uh, I, I couldn't be more grateful for how in depth uh, all of these, all of these responses have been. And it's definitely made me feel less like a grouch while watching this show. So thank you everyone. Yeah. I, think that Eric might be reading a little bit too much into it when he says that this is a specific allegory for Hollywood and how Hollywood... It does take place in women. L.A., though. Well, true. And I think there's definitely a critique of Hollywood culture going on in the show. But at least when it comes to these characters in a broader sense, I feel like this is just more getting at our culture as a whole. Yes, our culture is constantly trying to tell women how they should be and, redef and and define them in a certain way. Absolutely. And yes, I like this interpretation of Ray as just the stereotypical, gruff, tough, white, straight man's man who actually turns out to be not heroic at all and really broken and rotten and kind of disgusting who's finding himself needing to change in order to survive and be happy. I think that that's definitely an interesting way to, to look at his character. And I do think that it'll be interesting to see what happens with Paul and this whole idea of him being a closeted gay or certainly just sexually confused person who's trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man? Can I be this tough guy who's cool under pressure and knows how to fire a gun, but also be sensitive and be a family man or be gay. And mm -hmm. I do think that it'll be, an, it'll be interesting to see how he's developed down the road. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I thought they were going to just nail Colin Farrell's cliches of the first two episodes into the ground. And here he's changed into, as we've said, a much more pleasant guy. So who knows? I mean, maybe all my criticisms that I made for the past few weeks will be completely invalidated by the time we reach the end of the season. And I will absolutely adore everything it's been doing. It's interesting how it works like this, too, because, you know, especially when it comes to a show shows on Netflix, as I mentioned before, like you can binge watch Orange of the New Black and get an idea as to where they're going in one night. And here we have to wait several weeks and we still have to think about and digest exactly what we think is going on when we don't know exactly where the show is going. And, you know, I still don't know where everything's going. You're right, Charlie. Television is a whole different beast from film, just because, as you said, we can only judge what we see when we see it. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that once we see the whole big picture and what it was all building towards, some of the things that we didn't like when we saw them, or maybe even some of the things we did like, Will our perspective will change by 
the end. You know, you never know. You just kind of have to take it week to week. It's kind of like watching a movie in chunks and then try and trying to evaluate a movie as you go along. It's, it's, it's hard to do. And, you know, you're really not going to be able to make a, a very clear judgment in, in terms of quality until the very end. Until then, you can just make observations and try to track your own perceptions and, and kind of how your perceptions evolve over time. And that's another reason why I was so critical about Ray getting killed off is I thought, well, if, you know, I saw this on Netflix, I would immediately put on the next episode. And maybe I wouldn't have been as offended or, or you know, nitpicky if it was handled right away. Right. It would have felt like just one plot point in a larger story, as opposed to when you have to wait week to week, each episode feels like its own succinct story in a certain way. Exactly. Well, uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. We would love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509 or email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. We really appreciate hearing from our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Just go to filmgeekradio.com and click the support tab and the donate button to send a few bucks our way. We also have an affiliates page. You can use filmgeekradio.com to navigate to sites like Amazon. And anything you purchase, if you navigate there from our site, it'll track that and we will get a small percentage of whatever you spend and every little bit helps out and helps cover our production costs. So thank you so much for all your support. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can follow me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's CTNASH91. You can also find work I've written for certain outlets on Movie Mezzanine, Edge Media, All Things Horror, and Cinematic Essential at all of those various websites. Just uh, spell them all out and add.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to let me know that you're a listener. This episode, I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And I'm done with this one. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.